Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing. Hello and welcome to Mythmakers. Mythmakers is the podcast for fantasy fans and fantasy creators brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. My name is Julia Golding. I'm an author, but I also am the director of the centre. And I was thrilled looking through the upcoming publications and films to discover Carolyn Weber, who is our guest today because Carolyn has just put out a book and a film project called Surprised by Oxford. You couldn't really find anything more on brand than that. So Carolyn, uh, tell us something about yourself. Thank you so much, Julia, for having me here. Um, Yes, uh, I have an MPhil and a DPhil in Romantic Literature uh, from Oxford and, um, and did have a wonderful experience there. And I am currently a professor at New College Franklin. We moved recently to the Nashville, Tennessee area. And I do writing and uh, speaking um, and teaching on uh, faith and literature and the intersection of various genres in that way. Now, I was particularly excited in, in, in a very personal way because the very course that you did was the one that I did. So picture me back in 1995. I just left the diplomatic service or took a break from it. Uh, I was having my first two children. And Mm. I embarked on the MPhil, the Masters of Philosophy in Romantic Literature, um, and which then did another few more years after that to do the DPhil. And I think you did exactly the same thing, didn't you? I did. I did. But without children at the time. So you were far braver than me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how it worked out for me is uh, my my daughter is my MPhil baby. And my child is my DPhil baby. (laughs) <laughs> and I do, I do remember sitting in the M because part of the MPhil, as you remember, had written exams, my last experience of written exam. And I my daughter had chicken pox. I was oh my sitting, goodness. I was sitting in the hall thinking, I bet I'm the only person here who's actually rushed here from having put chamomile lotion on <laughs> oh. on a on a disagreeable baby. You probably do have a hold on that corner. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so um, if you don't mind saying, when when did you do your doctorate? Which, were you uh, a little bit after me? So I was uh, a little bit before you for the MPhil. I came as a Commonwealth scholar uh, a few years beforehand. Um, and then I was married uh, just shortly after the time you arrived uh, and had moved to D.C. for my husband's work and did the doctorate uh uh, the first year of the doctorate or so there, but then long distance for a few okay. years after that. that so explains, I finished my doctorate a little later. Yeah, that explains why we didn't actually meet at that stage. I, I, isn't that strange? I mean, we were we would have overlapped a little, I think. Um, yeah. 
So yeah, did you sit liked... at the feet of Jonathan Wordsworth, for example? I did. Yeah. I so did. there was, um, for those of you who recognize the surname, there, one of the uh, academics at the time, who has since passed away, uh, sadly, uh, was a relative of Jonathan Wordsworth, which kind of feels like the name um, of William Wordsworth. He was Jonathan and his great, 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 great uncle. So you feel as though somehow a surname has decided that chap's um, future. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It was it was a wonderful group that I had a, a great chance to, to study under. To okay, so let's think about um, what we're interested in most is obviously your your book and your film, Surprised by Oxford, nods towards C.S. Lewis's um, account of his uh, early years, uh, finishes in, in the early 30s, doesn't it? Surprise mm -hmm. and my joy. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more, more about your connection to C.S. Lewis and your time in Oxford. Mm. Well, it was interesting. I had arrived like most uh, from mainstream culture. I knew the Narnia Chronicles as a child and uh, and had adored those, didn't think of them in any sort of deeper way. I did not know of Lewis as a lay theologian or really much as even a literary critic, um, especially coming from a larger secular uh, undergraduate uh, system. Um, and <clears throat> so I was introduced to him through some friends when I was reading um, at Oxford. And I was actually dragged uh, somewhat reluctantly myself to a C.S. Lewis Society meeting, um, <laughs> thinking that it would be corny or, you know, whatever. And I actually was really, really moved by it um, in Pusey Hall at the time. And uh, it planted some seeds. So I ended up reading his uh, Surprise by Jor much sort of, you know, much later in my life at that point. But, uh, but I was intrigued because the titles from Wordsworth and I was studying the romantics. Yeah. So I thought, okay, what's this about? Um, and uh, But at that point, I ended up reading a few other of his works. Actually, one of the works I had read just prior to that, which whetted my appetite for him further, was uh, Sheldon Van Auken's A Severe Mercy. And uh, I was not a Christian at that point and had read that and knew um, that uh, Van Auken had studied, uh, had read and worked with um, Lewis as a student. So I was intrigued by, I started to become more intrigued by him through sort of that back door. Yes, and if I remember the Severe Mercy, that's it's a very um, moving book. It's about the account of a man who loses his wife quite early on, isn't mm -hmm. it? Mm -hmm. It is. It's a very, very poignant the, book. Yeah, it mirrors the experience that Lewis went on to have, of course, when his his wife, Joy Davidman, passed away from cancer too. Um, so there's right. a uh, that sort of clicks into the grief-observed side of right. uh, C.S. Lewis. Yes. The problem of pain. So um, you, you pitch up in Oxford, you find that uh, C.S. Lewis is connecting to um, Wordsworth. Thank you for reminding me of that. I did know that, but <laughs> not active memory. Um, so what did you think of Oxford in relationship to C.S. Lewis? Were you seeing him around every corner? Um, did you feel haunted in the nicest possible way by the Inklings? Oh, I felt tremendously haunted by virtually everyone who's thought a thought um, beforehand when I arrived at Oxford and sort of feel it in the walls. But um, but increasingly so. At first, no, I wasn't even aware of the Inklings um, until, again, being with friends and then going to the Eagle and Child or the Bird and Babe ourselves. And uh, and I, the same thing with Tolkien as well. I'd known, you know, Hobbit, Lord of the Rings as a child and um, 
I I had a mother who was a voracious reader, and I was always really blessed by that, and and somewhat sort of a um, a, a very magical person herself. But I hadn't known any of his other works, or really had known of his ideologies or his friendships. I didn't know of Charles Williams, or um, I mean, you, you know, his novels are a certain taste, and you know that sort of thing. So I didn't know the wider inklings as a group in that sense. And so as I slowly began to uh, then get introduced to George MacDonald and and Chesterton, and that through and, and Sayers, you know, through the, these really interesting friendships and their own coterie conversations, which I think is a romantic. I was in, I was always drawn to because of their circles. Yeah. Uh, you know, then it just expands like, like, uh, you know, roots in terms of connecting and, and reading other ideas that I was uh, really intrigued by. I mean, if you stopped any literary student uh, of our kind um, and asked them name a famous literary group from the 1930s, people would say, Oh, well, obviously the Bloomsbury group. The Bloomsbury. Mm-hmm. Which is mm-hmm. like Virginia Woolf and Co. Um, but if you say, well, actually, remember how that f- fabulously popular genre of fantasy was shaped by Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, mm-hmm. um, and much of uh, and the friendships between Dorothy Sayers and T.S. Eliot and Charles Williams, you've got another group that, who don't really kind of make it onto the university syllabus, do they? So I'm not surprised you didn't know about them. And that, they don't make it on the secular university you know, syllabus or the, yes, um, in many ways. And yet when you find something like a treasure, like the Wade Center with all the collection of the Inklings, mm-hmm. you know, and, and everything at Wheaton College, it's just a, a treasure trove of, of really rich ideas, regardless of your religious stripe. Yeah, absolutely. And they were not the same kind of Christians at all to each no, other. No, not at all. Charles Williams was extraordinary with his... Mm-hmm. <laughs> with his sort of secret society um, interest. <laughs> and then you get the sort of um, Northern Irish Protestant, then Anglican um, C.S. Lewis, and of course, C- Catholic Tolkien. So within that, you've got lots of flavours of your Christian ice cream. If, if you, <laughs> you know. um, Okay, so what brought you to write the book, Surprised by Oxford? Oh, that's such a, a big and deep and wonderful question. It was not something I intended to do. I set out to do at all, Julia. I was an academic and and was used to writing, um, you know, mainly researched work. Uh, and uh, but my experience there, especially over the course of my first year at Oxford, of reading these other thinkers and exploring a life of faith, and then eventually myself becoming a Christian, uh, had really sort of been sitting in my heart and my head. And I'm, I certainly didn't proselytize to students. I was teaching at different types of universities, but in private conversations with students or students who were asking or whatnot, you know, my faith was a topic. And, and I also um, had felt uh, that I really wanted to share the story and write more about it for my uh, friends and family who did not have a faith or who had questions about it similarly to myself. So I wrote it really quite personally in a, in a sense, actually more for sort of me and God and, and me and, and this, and this audience of friends or family members and students who kept prompting and asking. And I had written a couple of chapters that were foremost in my mind at first and then tabled it, wrote a bit, tabled it, um, and did for some time, largely at actually at the time I was untenured at, uh, uh, in the, in the secular system and was really warned not to publish something about my faith. 
um, until I had some sort of job security. Uh, and even then, perhaps not. So there was that wrangling until something in my life really actually changed that and, and made me realize um, that uh, where the line in the sand was for me regardless. But um, <clears throat> it ended up being longer than I anticipated. I think as English lit people, we have a lot of words. <laughs> 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 but I also felt it was important to share post-conversion as well, um, what that was really like, kind of being in the world and not of it, that Heimlich and unheimlich sort of existence. And, and um, you know, that it's, uh, yes, it's an amazing experience and, and spiritually moving and deep, but there's also this reality of trying to now navigate uh, a new world and a new way of being. Um, and, uh, and I wanted to share that as well. So I had actually ended up writing it over several years, but I ended up writing it the rest of it quite quickly, you'll probably understand this, after I was on my first sabbatical um, and uh, in Santa Barbara when I was teaching as a guest lecturer or guest teacher for uh, Westmont College, and I had three children under three. So I had twins and my little girl, uh, and that was the greatest um, sort of incentive for overcoming writer's block in terms of hiding and finally getting it done when I had moments and it brought it together for me. Yeah, so here's a sidebar for creatives here. Um, <laughs> when, when people ask me about writer's block, because I started my career when I had when I was on maternity leave for my third child, I, my my usually my first thought is, I didn't have time. Right. <laughs> writer's like, block is a luxury. <laughs> baby goes to sleep. Right, quick. Right. Um, you know, yes. and you pretend you don't hear the first cry, thinking, oh, you're going to go to sleep again, aren't you? You know, I'm I know. Really I can write up into a certain volume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, so uh, absolutely. So um, just putting your book alongside Surprise by Joy for those who are listening who perhaps can't remember the details of Surprise by Joy. Um, he actually finishes the account um, when he's a day, when he sort of calls himself a deist. He, he mm. it, it finishes, it's not like a whole version of it. He sort of says that, and, you know, going further on was I was when I eventually became a Christian. Um, he, he's actually more interested in his journey is having gone out of having a sort of childhood faith into a kind of atheism uh, of the First World War and as a young academic and then having these conversations with Tolkien and others Owen Barfield that brought him back. So you're actually taking the journey further on as to, you know, what, what ordinary life looks like uh, beyond that. Um, did the choice of what you were studying uh, in your romantic era, because I don't think I've asked you what your doctorate was about, did that have a connection to what you were thinking and feeling? Oh, absolutely. And I wouldn't have guessed it at the time. I mean, I think we do go back and see how these points are plotted. But uh, I was drawn to the romantics um, because of the their interest in that infinite longing. Um and you know, as we see even in German Romanticism too, and and Goethe and whatnot. And so, I was I was drawn to that overall out of all the periods I was studying at the time coming out of undergraduate. And so I think that seed was already planted. I was also really interested, Julia, in world religions. So how religion and was being shaped and whatnot in in England and the Commonwealth by colonialism, but also in the infiltration of the Orient and ideas and things there. But how um, and how many of these 
particularly second generation romantic writers were writing abroad. They were not writing in England themselves yeah. or in Britain themselves. So being shaped by these ideas. And um, and I, I was really drawn to myth and um, uh, the Greco-classical world and um, all, really the, the notion of uh, world religion. So that was actually really shaping my MPhil work uh, prior to, even though it was rooted in the romantics, I was sort of reading all around, uh, all around that. And I was actually drawn to the metaphysical poets, uh, as well. I was trying to figure out even as, um, uh, uh, without a Christian faith at the time, trying to figure out what sort of, you know, subtle, not that makes us man Dunn was talking about. Um, and so I was, I was really drawn to all sorts of theories and world religions and was studying all of those, um, and yet highly cynical of the claim Christianity made of being the religion. So um, yes, all of those things were feeding into to my, um, to my backdrop at the time. Yeah, so if you're doing the second generation uh, romantics, just people who perhaps don't know there's a difference. So the first mm -hmm. generation are roughly speaking, they're Wordsworth and Coleridge mm -hmm. and uh, William Blake, who's a kind of on his own figure, Mm -hmm. uh, and then, and sort of minor figures like Robert Southey and others. And then you've got the next generation coming along who think they're all hopelessly fuddy-duddy by the time they, <laughs> by the time they get there. And so you get the Byrons, Shelley, Keats, Hazlitt, people like that, yes. um, who in their own ways are sort of quite more revolutionary. I mean, not too much Keats, Um because his, mm -hmm. his life was so short, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that, but certainly Shelley was proudly declaring himself an atheist. Um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. his um, his time. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, their their religion of the Romantics is is absolutely um, fascinating and stormy waters, really, because it's part of the whole ferment of ideas that's going on there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you wrote your book after having the prompting to do that and, and I've now got image of you sort of you know putting baby down picking up computer um, <laughs> so, um it became it, it was published obviously and where did the film project come from that part of it mm. well this is uh, uh, yeah this version latest iteration of this is via yeah. Yes, it's much later. I, I, I mean, I certainly didn't um, see that coming either. I didn't anticipate writing a memoir nor um, a film. But uh, several years ago, over, I mean, Surprised by Oxford was published about 10 years ago or so. And here and there, I'd had different requests for documentaries or student adaptations or something to be done. There have been a few queries and um, I hadn't really taken them seriously because I wanted to be very careful with the story and the integrity of the story. But uh, Ryan Smith, Ryan Whitaker Smith, reached out to me. He's a beautiful um, screenplay writer, writer himself, and he's done some other film work. When uh, whilst we were living in Canada, so we had gone, we we were out in the states for years, and then we had gone up to Canada for about the last eight to ten years, actually caring for my elderly parents. At that time, was the main reason, and uh, and he was quite doggedly so reaching out at first I, I thought this wasn't you know gonna be serious and until my agent um Mark Sweeney who's always cared for me and my family very very care very very lovely man said I think he's actually quite serious I think he's mm -hmm. actually really quite quite good and I took and so I did talk with him at length and we developed a friendship a relationship um 
discussing the possibility of adapting this to screenplay. So we were uh, connected for several years by the phone and um, you know email, that kind of thing. But it's an amazingly small world, Julia, in God's hands, because uh, I ended up um, also working in classical education, going to conferences, things like that, with Greg Wilbur, who had, had ended up being... Um, He's a, a wonderful mentor in that area and had started this college, New College Franklin, that I now teach at. And he had been a former professor for Ryan. And Ryan's one of his favorite teachers who had taught him about film. And so all of these intersections started happening and, um, and the film project became just more of a reality. We worked on the screenplay together. Then it was, we thought, halted and stopped by COVID. Yeah. Um, as they were trying to get financial backing. And, uh, and yet what was actually amazing was we ended up doing most of the filming in England during COVID. Um, it actually, the doors opened for various locations and um, protocols and things that we would never have imagined. Mm. Um, and I actually had even the amazing opportunity to go there myself, which was very, um, I mean, absolutely unbelievable given the timing of world events and things like that. So um, we actually did some, a bulk of the filming right between the, um, the variant, you know, when it was resurfacing. So we had this strange window in which we mm -hmm. were allowed to do scenes in the Bodleian and that sort of thing. And, and I was actually able to go with my husband. So, um, so it, it did percolate, I would say over a good five, six years, really, but, but when it, uh, and we expected the filming in that to maybe drag on or have, have, have many more hurdles, but actually, it's been, it, it was all done quite quickly in the end. A bit like the motorcycle ride for Lewis. <laughs> to the zoo. <laughs> yeah, that, that's when he um, uh, decides he's going to become a Christian. I think it's in the sidecar or something, isn't it? Something yes, he's not one when he leaves, and he is when he arrives, and that's yeah. that's kind of how the last bit went. <laughs> yeah. So, um, did you have any influence over casting? Because that surely must be peculiar, casting yourself. It's very peculiar, and I feel very safe speaking, especially to a romanticist about this, it feels like a doppelganger. Um, although a much more attractive and lovely doppelganger <laughs> in my case. And my husband laughs that he has his has hair. But um so you had to cast yourself. Yes, I didn't have any say in the casting. Um, you know, it's a strange experience because uh, they consulted me on some things, which was really lovely. They didn't actually have to. Um, you know, you're sort of when you're making a film of a book, it was an interesting learning curve. You, you, I, I, they did consult me on some things, but actually, technically, it's sort of an adaptation of its own. Yeah. So I was not consulted with the casting. I didn't have any say in that, but I thought that who they casted were fantastic. And I did get to meet many of them. Um, just Rose Reed, who plays myself, which is a really surreal, strange thing to say, um, is just a delight and, and a very talented actress and a very beautiful person. So that was a great honor to have her do that. But also, I think it was, um, and she's a fellow bibliophile, uh, but uh, the those kind of many of those decisions were out of my hands yeah um, and so you've now had the launch of the the film and uh, what kind of distribution is it getting will I be able to go and see it or is it for streaming yes well we're still in process of thinking over that and um trying to think the right uh they're they're trying to figure out the best distribution plan. So it did have its world premiere to a limited audience for critics and whatnot at the Heartland Film Festival in Indianapolis uh, a couple of weeks ago. And it did receive 
excellent reviews, which was really heartening. Um, and the audience, again, regardless of religious stripes, uh, were um, enjoyed it, and and um, there was great feedback. Uh, but um, at the moment, it's not just it's not available for public distribution. We're still um, awaiting what that plan will be. Uh, so they were hoping that that would be decided or figured out before Christmas, but I don't think that will be quite enough time. Um, right now, so they're hoping for, I think, a hybrid model it would be lovely to have some time in theaters and some and some streaming. Um, you know, the world has so shifted and changed, yeah. and, you know, with COVID. Yeah. So we're still sitting on that at the moment. It's You can't um, watch it yet, uh, but it hopefully will be distributed soon, probably early spring, I would imagine now. So one of the reasons, uh, Caroline, I really wanted to talk to you from the point of view of the Oxford Centre for Fantasy is um, I wanted to ask you about your version of Oxford. Because <laughs> one of the things that you soon sort of learn when you think about these writers and the way they interact with Oxford is that Oxford is a real place, but it also is a mythic place. And it appears mm -hmm. in so many fantasy books. And uh, I've got this sort of idea of it being like a palimpsest. You were saying you were saying hello to all sorts of people as you walk around, you know, from the the people way back in history like Friar Bacon and those kinds mm. of you know early scientific pioneers up to today's generation so when you think about Oxford um are you sort of conscious of it being almost like a fantastical location for yourself or how do you where does it fit oh that's such a lovely question such a lovely question um I I, I mean, I think you you probably experienced this as well. On one level, it's a very, very real place, you know, with with uh, politics and pressures and um, and a lot of expectations and work and um, and and delight and busy. Uh, you know, your term is incredibly whirlwindy, busy. I mean, I always think of of the white rabbit, you know, in terms of how term functions. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but it also is haunted. Uh, it is a place that you can feel the history. Um, I think everyone does. I think that's a magic that appeals to everyone in a way. The cinematography in this film is beautiful. They did a lovely job, which is why it really lends itself to the big screen. But there is something I think that speaks to all of us in ruins um, or in old um, old places that carry many stories. A palimpsest is a great example. When you're there, you you feel the history, you feel the thoughts, you feel the suffering, you feel... Um, what has happened there, it's contained in that. That's part of the mystique of, of a place like England as well, but also of, of particularly Oxford because it's you feel the concentration of yeah, history and of thought, don't you? Yeah. And so um, they decided in the film to really highlight the, um, the, the sort of magical fairy realm feel of it. Uh, as, as through my eyes, which I did feel, but um, but in tandem with this student life and this busy life and and then later this life of being employed there too. But um, you do feel like you're on the shore of something, you know, that any moment it could, it, it could tip or that you're somehow in this liminal space between the two worlds. I mean, you do look at the portals going into the, into the colleges and they do open into these vast, gorgeous, beautiful gardens. And you can't mm -hmm. help but think of Narnia, right? They are like wardrobe doors. They are like, um, it is interesting to have this very busy, bustling city in the town gown dichotomy, and yet you can walk a few feet and be entirely in in perfect peace. Yeah, um, I mean, the, I I did my undergraduate at Cambridge, um, right, 
which I'm very fond of. And the thing about Cambridge <laughs> is that its beauty is is there exposed to sea because mm -hmm. the way the, it works with the river is you can walk, as a member of the public, you can walk along the backs and you see a whole range of most incredible, beautiful buildings. So mm -hmm. the the beauty of the uh, university is on the outside, you yes. know, visible. The thing about Oxford is it's full of secrets, yes. full of doorways, and you can't really see how beautiful each of the colleges are until you actually go in. Right. And so I, my interaction with Oxford has been as a, I had my academic phase, but I've also worked there uh, and raised a family there. So I'm very town. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> I'm not right. much town anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And still for me, I, I can sort of go into a, I went to a friend's wedding anniversary in a college and you go into the Unitarian Chapel and find amazing windows by William Morris and, Mm -hmm. I think it's Burn Jones. You think, well, if there's any other city, this would be on the map, right? <laughs> as, as a thing to go and see. It took me right. about twenty-five years to know it was there. Mm -hmm. yeah, it was mm -hmm. And then for lockdown as well. We um, mm -hmm. during the phase when we were only allowed to walk from the door for a certain length of time during under the regulations, we we started exploring the bits on the map we'd never been and discovered. A whole series of wonderful walks right in the heart of the city. Absolutely. Um, down a place called Music Meadow, which in itself sounds storybook. It, it does. It's, it's um you're on you're on the Char Charwell River with a, an old mill and bluebells and birds and trees, and you are literally in the heart of the city. It's yeah. going, you go deeper into the city, and this is this little enclave, natural enclave is there. Again, it took us 25 years to find that. Um <laughs> So I, I agree with you that I think Oxford is a place of doorways. And, of course, the, the biggest of the fantasy writers for doorways, I think, other than – but an Oxford one is um, Lewis Carroll. Yes, absolutely. Like that image of the tiny door you can't get get through because and then you, you forget to get the key when you eat the cake. Right. You know, that situation <laughs> uh, yeah. sums up that sort of being on the wrong side of the door thing. Yes, uh, Oxford, def it definitely does reward the seeker. And, and it does remind you that um, things, not everything's seen. You know, there's the unseen yeah. as well. And um, yeah. so that it, it is it is very, there is a, a, a magic to it that's very real um, in that sense. Yes, but also the danger is you romanticize it because there is some cutthroat um absolutely uh stuff going on so it's probably quite a good counterbalance that one of the most favorite famous television programs here about oxford is inspector morse where people are dropping like flies right <laughs> you know, so and dorothy yeah. of course is uh famous for her crime fiction so we also spawn you know mm -hmm. a lot of violence too oh. <laughs> yes. Yes. And there's, I mean, it, it's a fallen city like anywhere else, you know, there, it, I mean, there's people and human interactions and lots of political. But it's not as dangerous as it's made out in crime fiction, you know, no, um, no. it's actually a, a very face, safe city, really. Uh, it is overall. Yeah. yeah. I think so. so um, moving away from um, surprised by Oxford to your specialism in the romantic era, this is one of the great periods for fantasy, though people perhaps don't associate it with that because we call it gothic fiction. 
Mm-hmm. And we call it um, the the collectors of fairy tales and folk tales, like the Brothers Grimm. But also, of course, the poets were doing this too, the Romantic poets. Mm-hmm. So it uh, it is it is very ripe. Some of the sort of tropes for fairy tales came into our European consciousness at this point. Yes, and Robert Southey is is. Um, Credited for being the first person to write down Goldilocks. I don't know if that's true or not. Oh, I didn't know that. Strange facts. I remember thinking that's that's weird. Um, um, you know what? I think I do recall that because of his relationship with Coleridge's children, wasn't it? Yeah. No, yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. So, Carolyn, do you have a favorite romantic era fantasy story or poem that we should try to read? Oh, there are so many, and it, it's such a wonderful, dense time. And um, and I'm drawn to to Scottish nationalism in that as well. I think it's really interesting in terms of the folk stories there. Um, I, but off the top of my head, I think one of the most important and beautiful to read is Coleridge's Ancient Mariner. <gasps> yes, yes. Mm. Have you read the wonderful Malcolm Guite? Um, yeah. Yes. So yeah. people want to read a wonderful biography of. Coleridge plus an explanation of the ancient mariner and Malcolm Geit, who is also a, a Tolkien expert, has written a wonderful book uh, mm-hmm. um, based on it. Yeah, oh, I agree. Though I think um, Kubla Khan, you just have to read for the sounds as well. You right? do. You just have to read it as T.S. Eliot says, right? That a poem is an event. Um, yeah. You just have to. You have to read it to experience it, and yet you know its ending is is. Uh, really much that that magical realm but um but i think ancient mariner the 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 ballad rhyme scheme um the the story development the enter into another into another world that's in many ways our psycho spiritual landscape actually that journey into the interior again to think about margaret atwood and her poem by that name but it's such a uh it, it's it's such a beautiful rich uh um otherworldly experience I think. As we should get you back Caroline to talk about Coleridge because I, I haven't yet done a podcast on him but he of course the romantic writers and fantasy is definitely a podcast we should do. Oh um, that'd be fun. So just to finish up um we always have a where in all the world in all the fantasy worlds is the best place for something. We've done inns and magic swords and so on and so on. Um as we have both done academic things with small children, mm. rugrats at our at our knee. <laughs> um, I thought I'd ask you, where in all the fantasy world is it the best place to be a parent? Very often in fantasy worlds, the parents are gotten rid of. So yes, you know, that's true. <laughs> where is a good place to be a parent? Well, I think obviously Rivendell would be a great place to be a parent. <laughs> um, Unless you uh, want to leave your daughter behind, as you yes, buying lands. I mean, true. Is, that's yeah. true. That's true. But um, I do think somewhere where there is immense natural beauty, and you could trust the trees to care for your child while you have a nap, and, <laughs> and there's, uh, you know, there's nothing threatening, um, because of course we as parents uh, see everything. Is threatening yeah uh, the landscape changes for us and our mortality looms you know the moment we have children i was thinking of um i mean i i went through a whole range of horror stories when i was thinking about this but if you manage to survive and your children don't get bumped off um with the setup of being um 
a Weasley in, in the yes. Seems, you know, that's a family yes. group yes. together in uh, Harry Potter. I so, have many, uh, many students who wanted to be a Weasley, and Mark Williams is actually in the film. Oh, fantastic. Yes, he is. Oh, yes. well, there we go. So that's brought the conversation to a lovely um, <laughs> meeting point. So I would, in pe in times of peace, minus Voldemort, I would like to be in the world of Harry Potter. Okay. Mm, that's <laughs> So thank you so much for talking to us, Carolyn. And um, yeah, it's been wonderful talking to you. And I look forward to seeing the film when it does get its wider distribution. Thank you so much, Julia. It's a delight to have talked here with you today, too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mythmakers Podcast, brought to you by the Oxford Centre for Fantasy. Visit OxfordCentreForFantasy.org to join in the fun. Find out about our online courses, in-person stays in Oxford, plus visit our shop for great gifts. Tell a friend and subscribe wherever you find your favorite podcasts worldwide. Hi, this is Julia Golding. Are you looking for a way to find a gentle beginning to your life as a fantasy writer? Or maybe you're just wanting to brush up your existing skills, but you don't have time to come to a class. Well, we've devised for you the perfect beginner's course. You can find it on our website. The course is full of exciting chapters for you to take at your own pace, starting with packing your bag and setting out on an adventure. And over the course of the lessons, you'll learn to find a hero, gather allies, and get under your belt all the basic skills you'll need to write yourself your fantasy story. So why not have a look at this today and see if it suits you? And I look forward to meeting you in our chat room, which comes along with the course. So what are you waiting for? Time to pack your bag and get writing.